everyone. Welcome back to America Mao and the Metal Nurse. Paul is in LA. He was destined to be Hollywood for his entire life, and now he's fulfilling that dream. Mate, how are I'm you? Well, I love LA. Start my acting career, yeah. <laughs> I love LA. I would move to LA tomorrow. I think it's great. It's full of very weird people, so just be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> and, what's, and, why, and why are you uh, Why are you on the West Coast? Oh, I just started seeing clients and uh, going up to San Francisco as well. So I just finished my East Coast trip, seeing clients on the East Coast and then Florida, and then I'm coming over here to um, California and then finishing up and going back. Nice. So, so Matt, I have, I have a confession to make. I've got interest rates very wrong. We now got uh, close to 250 basis points of hikes or 10, 25 basis points hikes priced into the curve. Equities appear to be agnostic to this. What do you make of the newfound hawkishness that's out there, this yield curve inversion, fives, tens? What do you make of all this? Yeah, I mean, we got four, we got two, we got two of the four yield curves inverted, and two are basically whatever, 10 to 20 basis points away from inversion. But everything's okay. And and I if I get one more report from one of the bulge bracket firms saying that this is the one time in 50 years where you don't need to pay attention to the yield curve, I'm just like, this is so hilarious because you and I have heard this over and over again so many times in 2007. Don't pay attention to the ratings agencies. They don't know what they're talking about You know, on, on the CDO stuff. And don't pay attention to the inventories. And in, in Asia, don't pay attention to the currencies. The, the currencies aren't important. The equities are important. If I hear this one more time, I'm just going to scream. And so I've encountered a lot of from very large hedge funds, who, who, people who I think are, have been in the business 30, 40 years, who are accomplished billionaires. And they're saying, what are they smoking? What are equities smoking? that you don't see a really fundamental problem. And I, I think it was, it was pointed out to me very nicely that the Fed looks at nominal growth. The Fed looks at credit spreads and nominal growth to kind of get its bearings on rates. Let's not make this overly complexificationized, right? And nominal growth over six, you're going to get tightening. And nominal growth over below three, you're going to get loosening. And here's the big problem. Nominal growth is... is, is Two plus two, right? It's 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 productivity, and it's sort of endemic growth plus inflation, and it's very hard to know the difference between the two. But what people are agreeing on right now, Paul, is that most of the growth that we're seeing, which is probably seven or eight percent nominal growth right now, it's mostly inflation. <laughs> it's not productivity. The uh, logistical log jams are problematic. I think Randall Quarles has a lot to answer for because you and I discussed this when I was at the Milken conference and he was just like, what is everybody talking about? This is crazy to be thinking about raising interest rates and we're just getting off to the races here. It's been a terrible pandemic. We don't see any roadblocks. All of this is logistical log jams from you know, exiting Delta, you know, the Delta variant of COVID. That was like in freaking October, late October. Mm-hmm. This is the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve making very public statements. And then 16 weeks later, and we have like not a hawk, we have like B-52 Fed. What I saw today was like, are you kidding me? If you do this, uh, we are going to be back to quantitative easing again by September after the market crashes. Mm. You know, who, what is every, who's everybody kidding around here? 
I would say that the equity markets in particular, and again, I don't think it's right to judge an equity market based on seven (laughs) days of performance because that's that's effectively randomness. But it's been quite remarkable, right, given given the fact that the terminal rate now is heading above 270, it's heading towards 275, right? That, and and particularly the, the, the front loading of those tightenings into, you know, I think December. December 22 euro dollars traded at uh, below 97.40, which is implying 250 basis points between now and the end of and the end of March. Or sorry, yeah. So total cash rates are 250 basis points by now to the end of March. Just how sanguine and how benign the equity response the equity response has been. Now, I think that that's a function of you know there was a lot of excessive bearishness, and you can never discount. That a seven a seven day move on the back of a market that's just overly bearish, right? Market's too short and it, it it has has snapped back, but it has been remarkably resilient in the face of in the face of all of this. What ten year yield were up what fifty basis points in six weeks, something something to that effect, and it's a hundred basis points since since no since November. So equity's been remarkably resilient in the face of this, and I I sort of don't know why. Well, hold on a second, though, because you've got some some stocks that are just phenomenal stocks and Amazon is doing stock buybacks and we want to pay attention to these companies that are buying their stock back. I think that's I think that's relevant and important. Uh, Facebook is just an absolute you know, cash cow. You know, you're getting two bucks you know, per WhatsApp, I mean, each WhatsApp user. Apple is still just like printing money. And that's fair. That's fine. That is true and correct. But everybody knows this and everybody is in those stocks. And I'm sure that the value of the stocks can go up in line with buybacks, right? But besides that, how was the, the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Below that, it, it's been complete decimation. And so, so this is what we, we've gotten into this. I mean, these are the stocks that have been, well, whatever. They've been anticipating what's going on. And so mm-hmm. the S&P 495, like everyone is now calling it, is probably down. 40%. And a lot of these stocks that were some of the most owned stocks, it was the Robinhood group, are down somewhere between 60 and, and 70%. Yeah. And I think there's been a there's been a very profound psychological change there in the last like two months because I think even, even prior to to let's say prior to January 1, even February 1, prior to February 1, it was still, hey, the stock's down, let's get some more, let's buy some more. I think there's been a very profound psychological effect, partially initiated by the Fed, is basically saying, get me out of this, right? Tell me how I'm going to get out of this, right? And so that's where the bear market of 1974 and to 1981 is, is, is reminiscent because all those stocks were creamed. The, the Nifty 50 was down 59%. Mm. Right. And, 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 and value outperformed for eight years. The value fund managers got in the way and, and they, they outperformed. And the, the, these growth tech guys, their careers died. And I, I think we're just going to spend a lot of time of people figuring out how do I get out of Twilio? How do I get out of Robinhood? How do I get out of PayPal? Oh, well, let me, but let me push back on that, Paul. I mean, if, the things are, if these things are down, in some cases, 80%. At, the, at their yeah. lows, right? Are people that exposed? Are people that, if a stock is down 80% already, right, there's certainly been a, a, safe to say, a high degree of liquidation to state the obvious, right? So are these, are these, do these stocks continue to be relevant 
because from a, and again, my word's not yours, but you have implied that these were systemically dangerous exposures, right, because of margin selling. And I think we've seen a lot of liquidation on the margin side of things. With these things down, in some cases, 80% from peak, haven't we seen the worst of the liquidation, or should I say the worst of the mark-to-market losses? Well, okay, yeah, so, so let's back up a second. So, you know, I run this, this algorithm that I do every week, which looks at uh, a combination of a weighted average combination of volumes, uh, RSI, moving average, MACD, and, and short interest. What is disturbing and why I think that your assumption may not be correct, although it, it's compelling, Paul, is that there just was there was no volume in this sell-off, right? People could not get out of these positions. The stocks fell too fast. Right. And so people, the mark-to-market losses are massive, right? And that's what bothers me about all this. They're just, my, my, my algorithm has been getting, it's been more bullish recently, but, but it was just so persistently bearish for two months because mm-hmm. you, you weren't getting any, any short interest. Everyone thought the stocks were going to go up. There was no selling. Everyone thought the stocks were going to go up, but they kept going down. And, and mm-hmm. so, so when you don't have any volume and you don't have any short interest, Boy, you're in trouble. Now, flip to China, where there is spectacular short interest. There's been spectacular volume, right? There's been a real shakeout. And a lot of people in China were short like crazy stocks because they were trying to hedge themselves against private equity losses because of the the Hill House implosion. And so China has had a much more powerful, durable rally because of this. We don't see the same dynamic in America. Right. That's what bu- that's what bugs me about what we're seeing in the states. Right. We don't see that sort of sloppy, lazy, short interest. Oh, everything is going to go down. Well, th- th- that'll be later. Mm-hmm. And we don't see we don't see uh, uh, meaningful volume showing that people got out of their positions. Got it. Right? So, but, but one but one thing which I think was for me the most fascinating piece of news for the week so far, which actually came out last night goes to a topic we talked about last week, which was stock buybacks. And you just alluded to this now. And we made the comment, the comment was made last week that that if, if Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, et cetera, et cetera, with those stocks being down 70%, in some cases 80% of their lows, there was not a major share buyback announcement by any major Chinese tech company through that entire process, right? Which, again... You had companies like uh, Pindadur trading at four times cash, $20 billion of market cap and would make $5 billion in cash. And still, if the company's not prepared to buy back stock, how compelling is the long-term story? You saw that today with Alibaba's announcement, right, which I think is remarkably, that for me is a huge, huge change in potential sentiment. Because for all the things there is to hate about China, Russian exposure, tech regulation, declining growth, COVID, you name it. This is one important thing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. <clears throat> amen, amen, amen. And, and look, look at what happened with Amazon. Amazon uh, you know, announced a stock buyback and the stock goes up 10% in one minute. And, and so I, it's funny because I was talking to a lot of clients on the East Coast and in Connecticut and New Jersey and New York and and everybody was too scared to death of picking up Alibaba at like whatever it was, $77. And now it's already moved to whatever, 110 plus today. And so there's been a big move already. But but everybody jumped in at 150. So so that's fine, you know. 
including Berkshire Hathaway. And so they're still you know, stinging right from from getting in. So if, if, if you if you haven't owned any of these things, all like three people left in the world who don't own these things in terms of the tech, then fine, this may be interesting. Right. And that's what was a struggle with clients last week in, in New York and, and the East Coast was basically, God, the stuff is down. They just look at like these charts and like some of my clients haven't looked at some of these stocks in like a month. And they're like, you can't even recognize this, the share price because something that was $32 is now like nine. <laughs> and, and so they're like, that used to like have a three handle on it. Now it's yeah. like- when you, have to, when you have to ask what the handle is, you know you haven't been looking at this enough or something. I know, like right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And so I think there's some bottom fishing, but the problem is, and this is I went back and I read a couple of books two weekends ago. I did some research for my clients on, on the Nifty 50 and what happened and what was the phenomenon that, that caused them to underperform for almost a decade. Every time they rallied, people just went to get out. Because they just wanted out of their positions. You know, they just wanted out. And there was a guy called uh, Sai, T-S-A-I. He, I can't forget his first name. He was the Kathy Woods. I'm going to say James Sai. He was like the Kathy Woods of the Nifty 50. And, and of course, he disappeared. And no one has ever heard of him since. He was a one-trick pony. And, and I, think, I think that if you're like a growth tech investor at the moment, you better start changing your colors and reinvent yourself. Because... Uh, I just, I, I'm afraid that this could cause the, the nifty 50 phenomenon, raising interest rates can cause you to have a lot of long-term underperformance. And I think there's three reasons. One is because, as I said, uh, everybody owned it and it went down and people didn't sell it and they just took years and years to get out of positions, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Robinhood, Robinhood is down almost 80%, yeah. right? Uh, who the hell is going to get out of these positions, right? They're going to try to get out over time. The second one is during inflation, our consumer preferences change from what we want to what we need. And so so this is really, really important. And and then the third thing is, and it it, it goes to your, you know, electric vehicle thing uh, that you talk about a lot, Paul. And, And I think that I was struck in my trip. I think it's something that I've been talking about, but I haven't been talking about it enough. I think there's going to be a lot of instability in the emerging world as food prices keep uh, hitting in and Ukraine and Russian restrictions on exports of grains and, and barley and oats and bee, honey and sunflower oil is going to be really problematic for the world. And it's going to cause a sustained price in, in, in food. And that's where emerging markets can get very problematic and start to get quite violent. Uh, well, two, sorry, two observations on that. One, remember yeah. the Arab Spring was started because of because of food prices. Yeah, it was number yeah, one. The guy, the guy um, couldn't afford food for his family and he to put himself on fire. And, and, num- and, and number two is that I was talking to a, to a client this morning who was saying that the wheat markets, which are obviously Ukraine and Russia are both huge exporters of, of wheat, that you know, as we stand today, a normal North American summer, wheat prices are going to be okay. Supply is going to be okay. You get any form of dry weather, you get any form of crop loss, right? And we've got a real global shortage of wheat, right? And that is, yeah. not, and that is not just our $8 sourdough from the, from the posh French bakery that you and I both frequent going, you know, that sort of problem. It's a legitimate global food crisis. Yeah, right? and that is something which you know, again, we haven't dealt we haven't dealt with in a very long time, and it's just another one of the risk factors we have to 
that we have to cope with. Yep. Well, I would go a little bit further than that. I mean, I, I have clients who, who are serious commodity traders, and they're, they're talking about the potentiality in many countries of famine, like by the end of this year, early next year. And that was a wake-up call for me, uh, because Ukraine is a very considerable exporter of all of that food chain, sugars, oils, and uh, grains. And so is Russia. Mm. Now, on the flip side, the good news is that your, your neck of the woods, the Midwest, is going to explode, right? Um, because you just have this windfall in the Midwest. And, yeah. and so you see property prices on a tear all across the grain states. So I, I, I think that... But yeah, I think, look, I think, look, there's obviously winners and losers in all, in all of this. I mean, obviously, going into a driving season with $4 gasoline is going to be problematic. Look, I mean, and again, this whole thing about screwing the circle back to the rate hiking cycle, I mean, the question is, for me, not that inflation is if inflation is going to fall, because it is going to fall. The base, base effects are undefeated and inflation will be lower at the end of the year than it is at the start of the year. And there's not a, an economist, a central, central banker, a sell-side analyst or hedge fund analyst out there who doesn't believe inflation is going to be lower. It all depends about how high it is above, above, that, above that base. Now, you know, for me, I've been look. I've been wrong on rates. I thought the terminal rate had stopped at at at, um, at two twenty five, and we'd be done. I actually made, put a note out to, to clients yesterday saying to buy five year notes around two forty. We're there now. You probably don't. I, you might want to dabble in this now, but at, at the end of the day, it's rates. This what, what's the five year today? The five year touched two forty today. Okay. So it touched it touched it touched two forty today. Um, and in, and and it in, was inverted to ten. So big picture, it's the resilience of equities is it wouldn't take a lot for that narrative to change, given 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 where we are. I don't think the equities have been resilient. I think four five stocks have been resilient, right? No, that's fair. That's no, that's fair. Let's put it this way: Is there a catalyst to sell those five stocks, right? And if and if if you start to price in, if the Fed starts going in fifty in fifty point increments, right? Which let's let's face it, right? If I hear another person say the Fed put doesn't exist when you had close to eight percent inflation and they raised rates the first time by twenty five basis points, I don't want to hear that the Fed is no longer concerned about equity markets, right? It's concerned you you don't go twenty five basis points, you don't fiddle while Rome's burning, right? If you're not concerned about credit spreads or or equity volatility, right? So to think that there's somehow not a Fed put, now, we don't know where the strike is, but damn right if they're only going in 25 basis point increments at the moment that this is a fed that is remains concerned about volatility and asset prices uh fair fair that's fair <laughs> yeah but I, you know i got one client who's pretty good he's a pretty smart guy he's look i mean inflation could be double digits by july possible could be 10 it's good man I'll, I'll push back on that because at the end of the day remember what happened two years ago today around today right world was shutting down right now this was and and you had massive we were in a massive deflationary environment there two years ago today right which is a massive headwind from a base effect standpoint to what we're seeing now so double digit inflation by mid-year mate i I don't think it's going to happen and and again i think well look i mean at the end of the day during the 70s there were four peaks in inflation so it wasn't Inflation wasn't a homogenous multi-year thing. It, it peaked and troughed throughout the decade. But the one thing it had in common is that every time inflation peaked, stocks bottomed, right, through those, through those four cycles. And you had 
tradable multi-quarter rallies through all of that. And my, my base case at the moment is that that inflation has bottomed, and I think so have equities. And I think that that's part of the reason why, despite a more front-loading of, of, of Fed tightening, that if inflation has peaked, that's a good thing for stocks. All right. Okay. I, 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 I think the level matters. I think the level matters. And don't forget, I mean, I don't know what the base rate was back in like in, in, in going from 72 into 74 was probably a lot higher than one. Uh, it was probably three or something like that or, or three. Well, also, real, real rates were considerably higher than two. Yeah. 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 That's yep. right. And so, so, so I, I think we're in a very unique circumstance. Uh, again, I just say, Paul, you and I I've talked about this a lot. I just think that if you're going to be raising 275 basis points and stopping tapering, if you're going to not shrink the balance sheet, but stop it and then aim for shrinking, you're talking about very aggressive uh, fiscal and monetary tightening at the same time. And how does, hard, how does it not lead to a hard landing, Paul? I know. I agree. I agree. I agree. I think it's deeply problematic. When I read that stuff this morning, when I woke up and I was like, what? <laughs> like 12 rate increases? This is going to blow it up. I- I'm sorry. I-, I-, I think people are out of their minds if they think the equity market can just roll along merrily. We've seen too many of these things where people, the, the equity culture is sleepwalking into a mess when the fixed income markets are telling us radically different information. Yep. No, when you're looking at, at at virtually all four parts of the yield curve in inversion, uh, the equity market is marching up. The equity market is almost always out of tune with credit markets. All almost always. But you haven't really because seen a, a spread winding hasn't occurred yet, though. And at the end of the day, that's the as you've alluded to. That's that is probably the key here. Correct. There's been a little bit of a backup. Of course, don't forget. You know that that's that's the BlackRock put right. <laughs> BlackRock was buying the hell out of all that. And so BlackRock owns that. BlackRock owns the high-yield investment-grade spread. That's the BlackRock put. Mm. And so, you know, it's, you know it's, it's funny because when you go down that road, it's really interesting. All the smartest guys I know on the East Coast that I've said, that I talked to said, growth is probably going to surprise this year on the upside in America. It's probably going to surprise on the upside. The problem is, we don't have enough productivity. The growth is being led by massive liquidity and a return of domestic consumption. The problem is we probably have inflation that's 8%, right? So, so we have nominal growth of, of 2%, right? But let's call it nominal growth of 10. Nominal so we growth. have inflation of 8 and real growth of 2 or productivity of 2. You've you got to have 50-50. And that is the problem the Fed has. This was not the problem in the 70s. This is a much more aggressive, I want to even call it, even this is a malignant problem, right? Where, where almost all of the nominal growth at the moment is inflationary. Hmm. And it's even arguable whether interest rates will work on this, right? Because what's going to happen is you're going to jack up all these rates and then suddenly people who have a huge amount of credit card debt are going to blow up. Well, right. and, and look, but at the end of the day, I mean, and, and again, these are my structural biases and why I'm a long-term disinflationary guy, is that at the end of the day, raising interest rates is not going to drop the oil price, right? Yeah, exactly. The supply right. side exactly. elements are not going to be there. Now, now, obviously, we lose those people who think, again, who, who are dogmatic about their inflation views, and I've been dogmatic in the past about this, and I'm currently wrong, but even, even those of us who have been dogmatic have to concede that this is not just about the supply side, right? 
There is a labour shortage in this country, and that is playing a huge part in this currently. And that's the one thing that I don't have an answer for, and anyone who's a structural disinflationary disinflationist doesn't have an answer for the tight labour market and whether or not you're going to get those 3 million boomers out of retirement who are currently sitting and playing playing video games in their parents' basement, right? You know, that's the, the tightness of the labour market can be affected by interest rate policy, but I'm sorry, price of wheat, price of fuel, price of gasoline, it's not, it's not a monetary phenomenon. Well, I mean, one of the things that they might hope to do is to knock the wind out of aggregate demand and bring aggregate demand down in line with supply, which is really, I mean, you're, you're basically, you're using all the wood in your house to build a fire. So this is not ideal. So that's the thing. One of my clients made the point that he's super bearish because he thinks the Fed is going to have to go out of its way to uh, knock down aggregate demand in order to, to bring it in line with a restrained supply uh, response due to all these things, logistics, labor, and so forth. But I, I know I read LinkedIn a lot. I like LinkedIn because there's a lot of good insight up on LinkedIn. Come on, there's a ton of stories on LinkedIn, Paul, where you have a, some guy who says, "Look, and I just you know sent out a, a job specs, and 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 it's paying seventy five thousand dollars a year, and I want somebody with three years experience, and I want this and that, and I got like six hundred and fifty resumes. There is not a labor shortage. There was a labor shortage for pay that is above slave wages, which basically allows people to pay for their food and their clothes and their gasoline. Mm. And then they go home to a to a some horrible hovel. And that's basically called slavery when all you do is you get to have you pay for your caloric intake, your clothes and your transportation, and then there's nothing left. People are not doing that anymore. That's the great grand labor strike that's on at the moment. For good paying jobs, I, uh, mate, I feel I felt like getting a burrito for lunch, and I went into Chipotle, and the first thing I saw in Chipotle was a side table with a with someone behind it trying to get people to sign up to be to to work at to, at Chipotle. So I think that it's whether it's McDonald's, whether it's you know, whether it's fast food restaurants, whether it's traditional you know, more mum and pop restaurants. I mean, those that's where you've got a significant labour shortage throughout the throughout the country, which goes into that sort of minimum wage type. Who, who the hell is, who thinks $9 an hour is, is, is you, you can't even feed yourself on that. For God's sake, this is what's so insane about the United States is, is an insanity of, of slave wages, which is causing all kinds of mental health and physical health issues. And it's causing a labor market that is increasingly burned out and moving towards long-term disability. And so the long-term disability element of the labor market is probably getting close to 20 million people are on long-term disability because of injuries that they can't fix. They can't afford to fix their bodies. They are burned out mentally and psychologically and physically. They don't get vacation. They don't have any. And when you don't have any net, it just grates on you over, over time. And they can't provide for their kids. And this causes depression anxiety and chronic alcohol and drug abuse. It's really out of control. And since I've been here, I've been talking to a lot of different people and I see this has been deeply aggravated by COVID. So you need a a much more aggressive mental health and uh, addiction treatment and labor standards and people able to fix their bodies for God's sake. You know, so they can get back to work, and, and living, still there's living, no living wa- and living wages is certainly a, a living wage. A lot, living a lot wage, of exactly. exactly. Now, so Paul, one of the things we need to talk about. 
And we need to talk about Hill House because Hill House, we don't realize, I have been highlighting it for several weeks. And I, I think that my sense is that I think that a lot of the equity positions they have, they, they were in are probably liquidated. It's funny because I think that when central banks go in and they start buying the market, like what the Fed did in 2008 and just giving everybody a $10 billion check, that was great, <laughs> and so forth. Price-keeping operations by central banks work because the central banks know the bottom. They, they, they call the bottom. They call the bottom. They make the bottom. They cause the market to go up because they're not dumb. If they're going to own it, they want to own it at the right price, right? Well, Paul, you know? I remember, remember distinctly during uh, in August of uh, August of 1998, sitting in uh, the Goldman Sachs, standing in the Goldman Sachs trading room, going with all hell breaking loose. Yeah, I remember sudden, that day. And all of a sudden, the Hang Seng got to, to, to 6,996 yep. and it didn't go any lower. Yep. And didn't go any lower and didn't go yep. any lower. And the yep. HKMA came in and bought $3 billion worth of stock that day. And I think the market ended up 12% on the day, something something like that. Um, they bought $11 billion on that day. And the, remember the, the, the head of the HKMA had a press conference the next day. And his understatement of the decade was, we bought rather more than we expected. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, I'm not comparing what the Chinese did on Tuesday. I think it was Tuesday of last week. I think it was to do what the HKMA did, but certainly you had this confluence of the, what appears to be the end of the liquidation for Hill House to you know. Well, exactly, exactly, Paul. And I think, of course, who's going to know better about the liquidation of Hill House because they're talking to them every day than the PBOC, right? Hundred percent. And so, and so I think that now here's the problem. The problem is. Uh, uh, I'm guessing, I don't know, no one, it's very difficult to know the answer. I'm guessing about 12 billion of their positions were equities and about 2018 billion is private equity. Now, the private equity marks are very problematic that no one's talking about. Because they're not marked properly, because nothing's marked properly. What? Nothing's marked properly. Nothing's marked versus what the peer group is there. They're significant <laughs> premiums to the peer group and the lock, yeah. I have I, heard numbers, and everybody and his brother Hill House was the go-to guy for a lot of the private equity of the premier A-list of private equity in America. You can get, you can get a bite dance. You can get a so bite dance at the peak was trading at four hundred billion dollar valuation. It is readily trading at two fifty at the moment, and there is offers. Yeah. You, I've heard you can get stakes for sub two twenty five billion. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so we're looking at, I've heard, I don't know the answer, but I think we're looking at 30 to 50% markdowns in Chinese private equity right now. And these people are stuck in Hill House. And so I think most of the, most of the public equity liquidation, I believe is probably complete. Right. And, and the PBOC activity last week confirms this, by the way, I feel very confident in that the private equity is a very big black hole and these we, won't the first week of, we won't know until the first week of April where this stuff is marked. Well, even then, I mean, no one ever marks this properly. And, and so, Paul, I think that what was these poor bastards last week, what they were doing is they were short the equities to, to, to hedge against their private equity positions, and they were blown out of the water on both sides. Yeah, yeah, because, again, what people don't appreciate about hedging in liquid assets is you actually pay margin calls on those hedges on a daily basis. So if you're if you are long private equity and short 
public market futures, for example, in a rising environment, that's a devastating liquidity outcome because you've got to put up the money against the, the futures where you can't liquefy the, um, the private equity. Correct. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And the private equity, you're doing this precisely because the private equity has been so marked down. And so, so I wonder if there's going to be like a little bit of a, it's not a big number, I mean, 18 billion in the scheme of things is not a big number. No. I just wonder if there's going to be a little bit of a, um, the, the butterfly causing the tsunami thing. I'm going to say no at the moment, but we need to pay attention to Hill House as a problematic player at the moment on the private equity side. I've got to say, I'm getting more, given this, and again, I go back to the, the Alibaba buyback announcement, which I think is constructive. I think there's a valuation argument. An old client of mine who's, who's actually, funnily enough, been doing private equity for the last 10 years and is now going back into public markets, particularly China, because he sees so many opportunities, was talking with me about CNOC today. And everyone, I, I, I ask you to take a look at the relative performance of CNOC versus ExxonMobil. CNOC has underperformed because it is on the sanctions list. So Sorry, U.S. listeners, you cannot uh, actually buy this stuff. But if you are a non-U.S. resident, you should be looking at CNOC because it is a, you know, it is trading a severe discount to the likes of ExxonMobil and the like. It has an ROE of you know, twenty, well north of twenty percent. It's remarkably compelling, and, and like a lot of stocks that are on U.S. sanction list, is trading at sizable, sizable discount, discounts to global peers. Yes, and I'm going to push that argument further because I made an argument to my clients last week that China doing a 180. China's done three 180s, by the way. So I don't even know what three cents. Like, one. like one, oh, three 180s is like the same as one 180. Okay, got it. They're facing in the other direction. <laughs> anyway, so doing another 180 on, on sort of saying, "Hey, look at we're we're with NATO. We get you. We're talking." Just shut the shut the hell up. We're not going to say anything publicly. We're behind the scenes trying to get this thing under control. I think Putin's a goner. I, I just think Putin's a goner, and I think the east, the east and the west, is going to carve up Russia. And so, gee, do I want to own maybe some of these oil companies in China that are going to get some of these Russian assets very, very cheap? Look again. Know. The problem is for U.S. investors that they're all on the sanction list, right? So that is certainly a problem. But for European investors, this is remarkably compelling. Remarkably. And the other thing that's so compelling is, and I, I, I'm not going to write this down. I, I don't even want to say it, but if I was like a, like a, like a, a, a sociopathic investor, I would look at Sparebank. <laughs> Sparebank. Well, the funny you say that. The funny, funny you say, I, again, I, again, I think these things are uninvestable longer, you know, over the long haul. But let's be clear. Sparebank was one of those companies that anyone who traded Russia, who was, you know, again, I've had several, EM clients who know Russia very, very well. That was a core holding for people. It's a darn good bank. It's a darn good bank if the world is not, if, if Russia is not under the world's most draconian, the most draconian economic sanctions the world's witnessed probably since the Weimar Republic. I know, yeah. And it, it's probably one of the best institutions in Russia, by the way, right? That, yeah. It's the only one that works, right? Sparebank is the only thing that works in, in Russia. And, and so it's down 95%. So and of course, it's all been, you know, frozen and, and, you know, so forth. It's hard to buy. And I'm not going to write that down. And I'm not recommending it. Russia is, is completely in the wrong here. And, and, and they, sh- they should be punished at every corner. And, and I, I think uh, Putin's a goner. I really believe that he's gone. This is the Waterloo of Putin. Right? I think so. Yeah, I think so. He, he's played the world brilliantly. And he's punched so far above his weight for like a, the, the 13th economy in the world. Yep. He's been pushing everybody around for 20 years beautifully. This is the end of it. 
At Waterloo was when everyone said, you know what, we're done, we're done. And so everybody sent an army to Waterloo. <laughs> there was like five armies that, you know, and, and outnumbered Napoleon like three to one. And that was the end of it. And he almost won that battle, by the way, right? But in the end, he was crushed. And, and that was when everybody sent an army and said, this guy's done. We're finished, right? And so I think that's this not is the world we live in today, though. That's not, that's, that is not what we, that's not, unless the equivalent of, the equivalent of, of Nelson and the rest of the armies taking on Napoleon at Waterloo is actually the economic sanctions. That that's, yes. that's the no, exactly. Well, and NATO completely and, and utterly uh, coalescing and Germany and France and America all on exactly the same page. This is pretty unprecedented yep. in, in the last you know, 20 years. And so everyone's singing the same song. Every East European uh, NATO member, China is in on it now too. And anybody, and you know, you, the, I mean, you had five vetoes in the UN. It was 140 to five, you know, calling you no know, war criminal, basically. So this is, and, and I, I, I just want to say in, in general terms, I think that the people who are the powers that be know that Russia's in, in, in you know, deep, 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 deep trouble and they have got to get rid of this guy. And I think the, the nuclear weapon discussion is, 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 it's possible. There's a 10% probability, but deeply premature because of the consequences to Russia of, of using these. And, and I think the consequences were made very clear to the people around Putin. For sure. So, mate, how's the week looking? You're in LA. You're going to be off to San Francisco to see clients. How long are you in the US for? Just in LA, meetings, spotty meetings here and there around LA. Of course, every one meeting takes the whole day, of course, because you're in traffic the whole goddamn day. But then San Francisco uh, for the day, and then back to the the Far East. Oh, you go. So you're going back to see. You're going back to Singapore. It looks like it. Yeah, yeah. Good man. Well, enjoy the trip, mate. Have a wonderful time, everyone. If you go get a chance to see Paul, please do so. My friend, have a great trip. We'll talk to you shortly.